Good morning and welcome to the Mount. My name is Adam and I'm the lead pastor here and I'm so excited to celebrate Easter with you today. If you are maybe joining us for the very first time and you're at one of our physical locations, either here in Stafford or down in Fredericksburg, I just wanna say a special welcome. We're so glad that you chose to, to join with us as we celebrate the resurrection. And at whatever location you happen to be at, we have a group of staff members and volunteers who would love to get to know you after service. They would love for you to stop by the guest services desk. They would love to begin to answer any and every question you have about this place called the Mount. Or maybe you're joining us at our online campus and we love you just as much wherever you happen to be all over the world. We, you'll notice in the chat that we've got some online hosts who as well would love to be able to chat with you and talk with you and even begin to pray with you through the prayer request feature. Because here's what I know. Whether we are physically here in Stafford, whether we are physically in Fredericksburg, or whether we are joining us from all over the world online, today on Easter Sunday, we are connected together for one thing. We are celebrating, so I need your participation. We are celebrating that the tomb is empty, that the stone was rolled away, and that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it is the greatest news in the history of the world. It is the news that changes everything. But here's what I also know. In order to, to fully understand that, that great news, that news that changes everything, we have to know the context and the story of what Jesus had been doing up to that fateful Sunday morning when he conquered death and the grave. And so over the last couple weeks as a church, we've been in the middle of a series titled The Final Week. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the final seven days of Jesus's life, the things that he experienced, the things that he did, and we've been talking about them and how they were pointing and leading up to Easter. And if you remember, if you've been here seven days before that, that resurrection Sunday, Jesus and his followers, his friends, his disciples rode into the ancient city of Jerusalem, a city that was normally anywhere from 20 to 30,000 people, but they rode in that day to a crowd of 200 to 300,000. The city was busting at its seams. It was overcrowded. It was chaos. There was movement and energy. Why? Because they were there to celebrate all these religious pilgrims were there there to celebrate the holiest of all the Jewish holidays, the Passover. And so that crowd is gathered and there, there's this an anticipation in the air, this, this excitement. They're, they're, they're looking for something. They're, they're longing for something. And that something, that someone is Jesus. And they're asking, is he coming? What do you think? And so as Jesus rides into this ancient city, the crowd begins to celebrate and to cheer. And we're told in scripture that they take off their coats and they lay them down on the road for him to, to walk over on his donkey as a way of symbolizing him being royalty, kind of laying out the red carpet for him. And they begin waving palm branches as a, as a symbol of victory and freedom that they are hopeful that Jesus as the deliverer, the savior, the Messiah will bring them over the Roman, the oppressive Roman government. And then they began shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, or in the original language is less of a shout and more of a, a plea or a begging for God to save us now. And so on Monday, Jesus visits the local temple 
And as he's uh, walking up the temple steps, he sees the tables where the, these money changers who you come and you, you give money and they give you an animal to take for the sacrifice. And he sees them skimming money off the top. And in a, a rare moment of holy discontent or righteous anger, Jesus, like a toddler who has been served vegetables for breakfast, flips the tables over in this moment of anger and tells them, demands that they stop turning his father's house into a place like this. And then he spends the next couple days healing and teaching and doing the things he's been doing for the last three years. And then we get to Thursday. And the picture that is painted for us of Thursday in scripture is this picture of a, a calm before the storm. Jesus takes his closest friends, his disciples, to a, an upper room, a, a, an elevated room on a house. And they have an intimate meal together. He, he takes a moment and he washes their feet to, to show them that even the, the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, is here to serve those. And then he takes a piece of bread and he, he breaks it. And foreshadowing what is to come less than 24 hours from then, he says, this is my body broken for you. He takes a wineskin and pours some into a cup and says, this is my blood poured out for you. And then he gives them some final teachings, these, these pivotal key moments of teaching. And then he stands up and he goes out the eastern wall of Jerusalem, the eastern gate, down through this valley in this place called the Valley of Kidron, this place that was dark and scary and lonely. And he goes up the, the slope of the Mount of Olives to this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's there that we see a, a side of Jesus that we had never seen in all of scripture and we probably will never ever see again, the side of Jesus where he is fully human. And he, he drops down to his knees and he's, he's, he's sweating, he's anxious, he's nervous, and he, he can see into the future and he knows the, the pain and the, the heartache and the brutality of the massacre that is about to come upon his body. And he asks, he begs, he pleads with God. If there is any other way, let it be so. And then, thank the Lord, he stands up resolutely to accept his fate. And Judas comes in with the guards and they arrest Jesus and they take him from trial to trial, six different trials, three Roman trials and three Jewish trials back and forth between the Roman and the Jewish leaders trying to manufacture, conjure up some sort of um, conviction that will stick until finally they label him a blasphemer and in, a, and in charge of insurrection. And so we find Jesus standing before a crowd that just five days before was celebrating, shouting, Hosanna is now shouting, crucify, crucify, crucify. And so Pilate turns him over to be crucified and we're told in scripture that he is flogged or whipped or beaten to where his body no longer looks even human, but just right to the point of death, but not quite death. And then he's given a cross beam and he is forced to carry it through the streets of ancient Jerusalem, 800 yards through the, the very crowd that five days before had welcomed him now is ushering him out as a criminal, as the person who let them down. And he walks to a place called Golgotha or Calvary or the place of the skull. And it's there that Jesus is nailed to a cross and hoisted up and crucified. And as he's hanging there gasping for breath, he cries out, it is finished. And he dies. And the soldiers 
ready for the day to end, Joseph of Arimathea, a local Sanhedrin leader, comes up and says, may I have the body? And they lower the body of Jesus down from the cross and they wrap it in linen and in cloth and they take it to the tomb, the tomb that Joseph had been saving for his family, a tomb that had never been used before. And as they're placing the body of Jesus into the tomb, the religious leaders are also having a conversation with uh, Pilate, the local governor, saying, we're worried of what might happen if they break into his grave and find it. So Pilate says, we will do extra security. So now once they place the body of Jesus in the tomb, they roll a big stone in front of it, and not just a stone, they somehow seal the stone, we're told in scripture, and then Pilate stations Roman guards on the outside of the tomb to protect the dead body of Jesus. Now, imagine with me for a minute. Imagine being some of those original followers of Jesus that Saturday morning. Imagine the the emotions you would have been feeling. Imagine the the guilt and the shame and the wondering and the questioning of saying, man, is, is it over? Is it done? Did we make a mistake? Have we spent the last three years following a guy who, who was wrong? Is everything not going to work out the way we thought it would? This seems like a complete failure. How could it ever come to this? Their mind was flooded with doubt and defeat and anxiety and worry and shame and guilt. Imagine just some of the specific followers who would have been gathered in the room. Imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, Imagine knowing that the entire time that Jesus was growing up as a toddler, every time he he tripped and fell and got a scrape on his knee, you were his mother. You were there to kiss his boo-boo and make it better. But imagine sitting at the foot of the cross as your son is tortured and mutilated and having to watch. Imagine the tears. Imagine waking up the next day, wanting, yearning to cry, but there's no more tears. Imagine all throughout Saturday, the, the thoughts of the, the, the life of your son racing through your mind, all the, the highs and the lows, the moments and the future you longed for with him that is now not going to happen. I imagine in those moments, Mary said something like, I can't go on. I can't continue. Imagine his best friend, Peter. Imagine the 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 teeter-tottering, the the seesawing of emotions that that Peter would have felt as he flipped back and forth between anger over what the Roman soldiers have done to his Lord and his Savior and the guilt and shame of knowing that he denied him three times that night. I imagine that everything in Peter was thinking, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I just, I can't believe it. In fact, I I would argue that every single disciple gathered in that room, their their mind was focused on things that could not or can't happen. I, I can't believe it's over. I I can't believe it's come to this. We can't go on. We can't go back. What do we do? How, How does this work? There's just thoughts of can't and can't and can't and can't. And I don't know about you, but it seems like so many times in my life and the people I talk to and interact with, the narrative that our life begins with but is also dominated with sometimes is the story of can't. I can't move on. We can't have that. I can't do that. I can't pull that off. We can't get through this. We can't make it work. When something feels hopeless or dead, we use the word can't 
my marriage can't make it through this. It's just too big. I, I can't stop. I, I want to stop that thing. I, I've tried over and over and over again. I, I've done everything. I just, I, I can't stop. It's hopeless. I want that relationship to be better, but I, I just can't imagine it ever will. It's dead. It's hopeless. I think for many of us, there are these hopeless things in our lives that if we, we're, we aren't sure they, they won't or they, or they can't ever change. They're, they're just kind of dead and they're hopeless. And for all intents and purposes, they, they feel dead and lifeless. We have dead hopes in our lives. We have dead dreams. We have dead careers. We have dead marriages. We have dead finances. We have dead relationships with our parents, dead relationships with our kids, dead relationships with our siblings. We are surrounded by these things in our lives that feel like they can't happen, they won't happen, they are dead, they are hopeless, and we are defeated. And I think for the disciples, the death of Jesus left them feeling that way that Saturday. Why? Because everyone knows this, dead things don't come back to life. And I think that's where we find them on that first Easter morning. Take a look at me, or a look with me at Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 through 10. It says, early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. That, that other Mary is Jesus' mother here. And so what we're told is that on the first Easter Sunday, that first day, as the, the day was dawning, Mary Magdalene, who was somebody who everyone had overlooked because she had been so broken and so abused and so battered and her life was such a mess that no one expected her to ever amount to anything. But it's funny that she's one of the people scripture focuses on in this moment and also the mother of Jesus, Mary. And it says they are on their way to the tomb. Now, I don't know about you, but for most of us, because we have 2,000 years of like uh, interpretation of scripture, that we view this as, man, they're going to the tomb. They're, they're expecting Jesus to be alive. They're gonna go, they're like, hey, it's been three days. He said three days. Let's go to the tomb. Let's go see if what he said is really true. But no, no, no. That's not the case. In fact, in the Gospels, Mark and Luke, two of the other biographical authors of Jesus' life, were told some of the reasons why they're going to the tomb this morning. And what we're told is that one of the main reasons is because at the time of the day when Jesus, was, uh, when Jesus died, it was so close to the Sabbath that they didn't have time to properly prepare and anoint the body for burial. So they hastily put him in the tomb and then they spent part of Saturday and part of, as they wake up on Sunday, preparing the spices and the oils to go and anoint his body, to prepare it for proper burial. But we're also told that as they're walking there with their anointing spices and the things they would need to prepare this, that they begin to have a conversation with each other. And they look over at each other and like, hey, um, once we get there, who's gonna move the stone? Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna move the stone out of the way so that we can finish this burial? And so this is important because what you need to realize is that when Mary and Mary are on their way to the tomb on that first Easter morning, they are going there not as people expecting an empty tomb, not as people expecting a resurrection. They are going as people who have known in their mind, we have been defeated, this is over, this is done, Jesus is dead, and this can't get any better. 
verse 2. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I mean, they're going to be afraid. Like, the guards just didn't faint. They fell into a dead faint. Like, you can imagine, yeah, we're terrified, right? He says, says, do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified, but he isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, for remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb, and they were very frightened, but also, and I want you to to say this, they also were filled with great, you you don't believe it, say it again, they were filled with what? And they rushed to give the disciple the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. I don't know if you caught this, but in a matter of seven verses, they went from defeated and hopeless to great joy. In a matter of moments, they went from this can't happen, this won't happen, this is impossible, to great joy. In fact, I would argue that the women who were walking to the tomb that morning were not the same women who were walking away. And you're like, what do you mean, Adam? Like, did they change? No, they didn't change appearance. Nothing about them looked differently. But picture this. When they are on their way to the tomb, every step they take is full of despair and hopelessness and thoughts of this can't be, this can't be, I can't believe this, we can't go on, we can't, we can't, we can't. But the women who are walking away from the tomb are full of hope and great joy and a future that is limitless and they believe that anything is possible and instead of the word we can't, they are saying, but he did. You see, here is the beauty of the Easter story and this is gonna be up there for you. We can't, but he did, and he still does. Like we, when we think we can't, we remember that God already did and that he still does. When we think we can't, we remember that God already did and we remember that he still does. I I don't think you're hearing me this morning because I think if you truly heard me this morning, you would be celebrating the fact that when we think things in life are dead and it's impossible and it's hopeless, there is a God who already did the impossible and he continues to do that in our lives each and every day for those of us who believe in him. On the way to the tomb, they thought it was over. They felt defeated like nothing could happen because dead things don't come back to life. But he did. He did. And here's the beauty of Easter. He is still resurrecting dead things today. Question, what dead thing do you want to see come alive? What dead thing do you want to see come alive? 
What, what dream did you feel like God was calling you to, but you've given up on? You've settled and let the dream die. Maybe it's your, your marriage. Maybe you're here today and you began your marriage and it was, it was everything you hoped for. You, you were building a relationship and there was intimacy and there was communication and there was all these, these future ahead of it and these dreams you longed for. But then slowly over time, either you began to drift or maybe there was a moment of infidelity or something happened. And now when you describe your marriage today, you would just say it's dead. It's hopeless. It can't be fixed. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe you're a parent and it's a relationship you have with a child. Maybe your child has, has grown up and moved out of the house and they're an adult child and the, the things you longed for of having a, an adult child that you could connect with and have a relationship with and see grandkids and everything would be great. Maybe though that over time they have drifted and now that relationship is dead and you have no contact with them whatsoever. Maybe you're the child and it's your parents. Maybe growing up you were abused, hurt, and now you want nothing to do with them. They are dead to you. Maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a coworker, the list could go on and on. What dead thing do you want to see come alive? You see, so many of us, I feel like we live our lives as if we are on the way to Easter. What do I mean by that? We're, we're like the women who are going to the tomb that morning. We are going through life where things feel hopeless in moments, where we feel defeated, where there are things that just can't be done. But we're not going to Easter anymore. We are coming from Easter. The tomb is already empty. We are the women who are leaving the tomb, the women who are full of hope, full of great joy, full of possibility, the idea that with God, because of what he did, nothing is impossible, and this is a God who takes dead things, dead relationships, dead marriages, dead finances, whatever it is, and he makes them come back alive because he is a God who did the impossible. He made dead things come alive. What dead thing in your life do you want to see come alive? In Romans chapter four and Romans chapter eight and John chapter 11, we see this kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead when it's described. It is described as the very same power for those of us that have called on the name of Jesus. It is the very same power that lives inside of us to where we have the authority and the power to bring dead things back in our lives, back to life through Jesus working in and through us. What dead thing do you want to see come alive? And now, I, I know that as I say this, regardless of what campus you're watching from, there are gonna be a high percentage of us that are gonna say, you know what, like, things are great. I'm good. Right, like we, we put up this, this front that says, work's great. Relationships are good. Marriage is great, kids are great, it's, I'm good. Like I, I, got my, I got my Easter clothes on, we're gonna take a great picture and then we're gonna eat some lunch afterwards. Like, hey, we're, we're good, Adam, everything's great. Let me just share with you a passage from Mark chapter 10 that I think maybe applies to this and it begins in verse 46, it says this. Then they reached Jericho and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, 
Son of David, have mercy on me. Right, like it's important what he shouts. Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road as a blind beggar and he knows Jesus is coming by and he starts shouting, Jesus, son of David. That is a messianic title. He is acknowledging that Jesus is the true king and savior and with him anything is possible. So this isn't somebody who's doubting. This is somebody who is confident in the power that Jesus has. And he's shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it continues, look what the crowd says. Verse 48, the crowd says, be quiet. <laughs> like, like, stop talking, blind man. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, when Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said, come on, he's calling you. So Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Uh, picture this. He's walking through this crowd, Jesus and his group of friends, his homies, and they're going and they're walking and all of a sudden Bartimaeus cries out and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, you just have to picture, he kind of stops for a moment. Maybe it's Peter or Andrew, James, John, and he goes, hey, that man over there, bring him here. And he like, you know, calls him out of the crowd. And instantly it says that they said, cheer up, he's calling for you. Why? Because every single person in the crowd that day knew that when Jesus calls someone who is sick and hurt and lame and blind and can't walk, any of those things, he is going to heal them. That's what he does. And so they're like, Bartimaeus, dude, you got picked. Come on, come check this out. And they're all like, oh, what's he gonna do this time, right? Like, is he gonna like touch his eye and he can see? Is he gonna put mud in his eye? Is he just gonna be like, uh, see, and he can see, right? But like, Jesus could do anything he wanted in this moment because Jesus knew Bartimaeus. He knew he was blind. Even if he wasn't the son of God and didn't know he was blind, he could see that he was blind. Here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, Bartimaeus, so glad you're here. You can see now. Be healed. He could have. No, no, no. What does Jesus do? Verse 51. He asks, what do you want from me? Jesus says, Bartimaeus, what do you want? And sometimes I just wonder if the gap between that life of it can't get any better, it's dead and it's hopeless and full of despair, and that post-Easter resurrection, dead things coming back to life, life that Jesus promised us, is us willing to admit, I need help. What about you? This Easter, maybe you came in and you're like, man, I, my life is fine. But if you're honest, there's dead things that you wanna see come back to life. Maybe you need to acknowledge that you need help. Jesus, my marriage is broken. I need you. Jesus, I am overwhelmed with anxiety and depression. I need you. Maybe for you, it's just your relationship with the Lord. 
Maybe in college or high school or middle school or even elementary, you were passionate and on fire for the things of God. And over time, you drifted, and now you find yourself only attending church at Christmas and Easter. And maybe today, Jesus, I need you to bring my dead faith back to life. I need you. Because here's what I know. The power to change things in your life is not something that's floating out there that you can tap into if you do things just right. It's not this power that you can motivate yourself to get enough willpower and try hard enough to fix the dead things in your life to come back to life because dead things don't come back from trying. In fact, we're told in John chapter 11, this beautiful story where Lazarus, one of Jesus' best friend, has died and Jesus shows up and Jesus makes this statement when he's there and says, I am the resurrection. You see, the the resurrection of Jesus was not an event, it's a a person. The power to bring dead things back to life in your life was not a one-time thing, it's a person. And what we see in scripture over and over and over again is that when the resurrection, the resurrected king, when the resurrection steps into the dead things in our lives, they come back to life. What is the dead thing in your life that needs to come back to life? Today, it depends on the power of God working in and through you but it starts with you humbling and knowledge I need help let's pray father we are thankful for your son for the way that he conquered death and rose in a powerful way from the grave as we continue praying this morning in this moment maybe you're here And if you were just being honest in a a moment of vulnerability and transparency, you would say that there are dead things in your life. And you would love to see them come back alive. And you're just saying this morning, Jesus, I need help. I would love to, to pray for you. And so I'm going to ask you to do something that might make you a little uncomfortable. If that's you this morning and there is something in your life, whether it's a relationship or a marriage or a dream or whatever it happens to be, and you would love to just cry out to the Lord and say, I need your help to make this thing come back alive. Would you just raise your hand wherever you are, whatever campus you are at? I see your hands. I see your hands. If your hand is up, I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised that you would display your resurrection power in and through them. That you would bring dead marriages back to life, dead relationships back to life, dead dreams and hopes and wants and desires back to life. That you would restore brokenness. You would allow us to move past sin, sin that we feel trapped in and stuck in. God, that you, by your resurrection power, would bring our faith back alive so that we could live for you as our risen king. As we continue praying, just want to ask the question, Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Because here's the thing. You may want this, this power in your life to live abundantly, but it only comes through submission and surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, he died for you because he loves you that much. 
that in the midst of your rebellion, and I know you might not like that word, but your selfishness or your pride, he died, took your punishment, and rose from the grave, defeating death, so that you could live a new life in him for all of eternity. And maybe today the thing that you need to recognize is that Jesus loves to take dead things and make them alive. And today you are not here by accident. He wants to take you a dead thing and make you alive so that you can walk all over this earth and tell people that you've experienced the impossible and the unbelievable. You have been saved by a God who loves you. If that's you this morning in an act of just boldness, whatever campus you happen to be at, would you just slip up your hand right now? Jesus, I surrender to you. Be my king, be my Lord. If your hand is raised, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I am a sinner. I need your grace. Jesus, come into my life, be my king, be my Lord. Today I turn, I repent and run to you. And everyone said, amen. Church, I wanna let you know that if you prayed that prayer or you raised your hand and one of our, our prayer team was not able to come by and give you a card or maybe you put it down as they were walking back by or maybe you prayed the prayer but weren't sure about raising your hand, I wanna let you know that our prayer team would love to talk with you afterwards. But I also know that you've got kids to pick up and photo booth and everything else. So on the seat back in front of you, there is a, a green card with a QR code. You can actually scan that QR code and you can let us know about your decision today because as a church, we wanna follow up with you and celebrate the fact that you were once dead and now you are alive. And so now we're gonna move into a time of worship for one last song and we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing about a God who not only does change things, but did change things and continues. He is the same God, the God who is always moving and changing and overcoming things in life. So let's stand and let's sing and worship.